The Sunday Review with Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Sunday Review. We'll be finding out from dietitian Nahida Habib about how an allergy to cow's milk could be affecting infants. Jill Booker from the six East Grinstead Brownies tells us how the loss of Blacklands Farm Activity Centre could affect local youngsters. And Matt Ollie from West Sussex Public Health reminds us about the importance of childhood vaccinations. Our newest presenter, Jago Bailey, will be delving into the environment and finding out all about bees from Janice Fern at the East Grinstead Beekeepers Association. And Paul Tolney is here with Steve Ode and news of a critical mass cycling event. He'll also be chatting to Dawn Reed from Five Rivers Fostering about the desperate need for more foster families across the UK. All coming up in this edition. New studies suggest that one of the most common food allergies in infants is cow's milk. However, it can be difficult to diagnose and manage as it has a range of non-specific symptoms. As part of Allergy Awareness Month, Nestle Health Science have launched a campaign to increase knowledge. To tell us more, I'm joined by dietitian Nahida Habib. Nahida, welcome to the show. Now, what are some of the typical symptoms of cow's milk allergy? Hi, thank you for having me. Um, so, so first of all, um, it's split into two very clear sections. One is called Ig um, immediate effect, and one is called non-IgE, which is a non-immediate effect. So, essentially, the the immediate effect one happens <coughs> when we've ingested the cow's milk protein for minutes up to two hours, and these are quite severe symptoms, such as hives, rashes, swelling of the throat, lips, face, eye, other areas of the face, the eyes. Um, I think obviously they're quite scary ones for parents and, and very likely to just result in an A&E admission um, and, and the hospital tends to manage that that side of things. Um, and then on the other hand, we've got the non-IGE, which is non-immediate effect. Um, and this is where it's typically delayed symptoms, anything from two hours to 72 hours after ingestion. Um, these types of symptoms are things like um, diarrhea, vomiting, constipation, abdominal pain where babies sort of bring legs up to to their stomach and they're just in discomfort lack of sleep for them and just generally being unsettled and obviously because um this can happen up to 72 hours afterwards and they're feeling good and well it tends to result in a sort of refusal of milk as well because as you can imagine if you had these symptoms yourself you probably won't be feeling well enough to eat um, or take anything else on so what sort of scale are we talking about here how many infants are likely to suffer from this allergy Okay, so the, some, some papers are saying as low as 1% and some as high as 7%. Uh, but the majority of what, I, what, I've, what I've seen myself in literature is typically between around the 2 to 5% of the population. So it's, it's quite high, which is why I'm, I've kind of um, wanted to get on board with this and, and try and increase the awareness because it's affecting a lot of people and a lot of families. As you've mentioned, it can be quite confusing as there are so many different symptoms. Why is early detection important? I think it really simply linked back to those symptoms because, you know, imagine a, a baby having those symptoms. Um, so for me, it's the quality of life um, to try and get, to try and increase, improve that, improve that for not just the baby, but also for the parents. Um, as you can imagine trying to deal with that and, and not, I'm being told that, oh, you know, babies are, are just sick or babies just don't sleep well or, um, you know, they do get diarrhea or they are constipated because they're very difficult symptoms um, to, to diagnose with because they, they they happen all the time, so I think trying to get that early detection um, improves uh, the, the 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 mood of the household in general anyway, um, hopefully re reduce visits to other healthcare pro professionals and from being passed from pillar to post really. If parents are concerned, then when should they get advice from a healthcare professional? I think like anything, if it's starting to affect things in the house or it's starting to affect the baby actually taking the formula or they've got any concerns about their growth or just that, they're not getting sleep as a household. That is that is reason and cause for concern for me to say, right, I need to go and speak to somebody about this. Um, but as I said, because um, the, the symptoms are quite difficult um, for somebody to who isn't specialised in this or doesn't do it often, um, it do, and a lot of the time the there, there aren't any growth issues so that this is why people get battered off oh well baby's fine they're growing fine but um, these symptoms are just something that's part of them um, of being a baby i think if uh, parents are going in there with, with confidence and like this awareness of actually this could be something else could this be checked and um, then i think um, that that's what they should be doing and what sort of things can be done to manage the diet for infants who have this allergy 
So obviously, first and foremost, we, all, we, we everybody wants to promote sort of breast is breast and continue breastfeeding. Um, sometimes um, babies have these symptoms uh, and it becomes quite apparent that it could be the dairy that, that mother is ingesting, for example, um, and it's then being passed on to the child. So what, what we generally tend to do is um, for breastfed mothers, breastfeeding mothers is to help them uh, educate them in terms of what, what they can and they can't eat um, so that they're, they're reducing what's been passed through to, to baby. We then help them when it comes to the weaning stages um, in terms of food labelling and what, what's on, on, on tins, uh, what other things that milk are called, etc. And going forward after that, the support doesn't stop there. In our borough, we tend to help afterwards to so try and reintroduce um, milk at a later stage when it's appropriate. For those that are formula fed, for, for whatever reason that might be, again, similarly, we would um, look to prescribing um, or requesting prescriptions for what for the for the formula that we feel is is most suitable for that child, um, up until the weaning age, and again help and support, and when they can then move to an alternative milk that isn't a formula milk, post one years old, and again exactly similarly, then look at how we're going to reintroduce this post that age as well. So if for some reason the allergy isn't picked up or it's not managed correctly, are there any long term effects? Yeah, I think the main one is going to be that um. Uh, is the faltering growth because what you tend to find is what if if we're having all the symptoms and it's not picked up um as a secondary thing babies will then get um uh, referred to us much further down the line at potentially anything from five five months to i think i had one last week of, uh, of nine months um where there's then faltering growth and that happens because obviously baby isn't isn't taking to eating or isn't taking to drinking because of the relationship they then have with ingesting food or ingesting anything so for them as much as they're doing it as, a, as survival to, to to have enough they will have just enough um to where they think that 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 line is for them but it's not enough for, for healthy growth um so the faltering growth is a big issue and we do get lots of babies through that have then had that as a secondary consequence yes Clearly, there's quite a lot to take in there. Where can people go to find out more about cow's milk allergy? Um, well, I think they can literally just go into any um, search bar and, and type in CMA Parent and Nestle because they actually and it should take them. The first hit should be the Nestle website, um, NestleHealthScience.co.uk, um, and there's lots of information of, of things that I've said and in more detail on there as well, and, and things that can really help parents. That's great. Nahida, thanks so much for joining us and explaining more about this allergy. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. For more information, you can visit the Nestle Health Science website at nestlehealthscience.co.uk. That's nestlehealthscience.co.uk. We'll post the link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. An outdoor activity centre in East Grinstead that's used by thousands of youngsters each year is at risk of closure. Blackland Farm has been a regular destination for school children and members of Rainbows, Brownies and Guides in Sussex since 1938. But all of that could end in the next few months as the charity which runs it, Girl Guiding UK, has announced it may sell the site. Jill Booker, a leader at Six East Grinstead Brownies, joins me now to explain the impact this will have on local young people. Jill, thanks for joining us. Now, before we talk about the activity centre itself, tell us a little more about your involvement with Girl Guiding and the Brownies group that you lead in East Grinstead. Yes, well, I'm the leader of, as you say, the 6th East Grinstead St Mary's Brownies, along with my assistants, Debbie, Sandra and Judy. We also have two young leaders who help us run the meetings. We have 24 very lively brownies at present who come along each week to partake in various activities, but most of all to have fun while they learn and challenge themselves. I first joined as a brownie when I was seven and have been a leader for over 50 years, the last 44 running my present unit, which I love and enjoy which I must have done to be doing guiding for all this time. Wow, that's a long time to be involved in girl guiding. So tell us, what does Blackland Farm offer to youngsters in the area? Well, during my time as a leader, the numerous number of girls who have passed through on their guiding journey 
have spent many happy hours at Blackland Farm. These consist of brownie holiday weekends, brownie meetings where the girls have taken part in abseiling, bungee trampoline, grass sledging, wall climbing, zip wire, and the crate challenge, which we only did about a couple of weeks ago. They enjoy every moment of it, even when we went for a welly walk through the woods and a couple of girls lost their boots in the muddy stream. All good fun and what guiding is all about. They love cooking marshmallows over a campfire and singing campfire songs. There may be many other activities where the girls have the opportunity to challenge themselves. They learn new skills and they all make new friends while they're there. So where will we go in the future? Blackland Farm is only just a short drive away for parents of rainbows, brownies, guides and rangers in East Grinstead. Even guiding and scouting groups from surrounding areas use the site. The Duke of Edinburgh Award Scheme used the site for overnight camps. I did the scheme and I got my gold award, but we didn't have the luxury and the safety of Blackland Farm. Parents nowadays can be sure that their children are in a safe space. This is also very sad and so unexpected for guiding in East Grinstead. The decision to sell Blackland Farm will affect not only the girls, but the members of staff, some of whom are members of Girl Guiding, volunteering in their own time. There is also the Friends of Blacklands, who for many years have raised money for the site, enabling young people to enjoy more facilities. The East Grinstead Trefoil Guild, of which I am secretary, plus other guilds, can be found throughout the year having fun, trying out new skills. Schools and other youth groups also make use of the activities on offer. But Girl Guiding has said that only 10% of Girl Guiding use the sites. Well, we find that if we have to book a pack holiday or anything big at Blacklands, we have to give about a year or two years notice before they have the space for us to go there. And that's one of the problems, I think, why not so many guiding units are using the site. But as you say, from your experience, it's not that the site is being underutilised, it's just that girl guides themselves perhaps aren't getting as much of a look in. It could be, because as I said, the schools use it and other youth groups do, because I understand that Blackland is fully booked this year, especially the um, brownie houses that we use for pack holidays. You couldn't get a pack holiday this year, probably, because it's so booked up. And was there any indication that this was on the cards, or was it a complete shock to you? No. We, um, we had an email through from Guiding just to say that the Board of Trustees, trustees are planning on selling five sites. And as you say, Blackland Farm was opened in 1938 and that it's on the list of closure with four other sites. Um, many ex-guiding members will know um, Foxlease in the New Forest. There's Glenbrook in the Peak District, Innisgain in Wales and Waddo Hall in Lancashire. In fact, some of our Trefoil members have recently spent a week at Waddo Hall and had a fantastic time up there. But also Blackland Farm is, we are told, will keep operating until the 31st of December 23. And all the 2023 events that are going ahead will still go ahead as planned. So if pack holidays are booked for September, October, November, whatever, they will all go ahead. In fact, my brownies are going to a Fearless Fun Day, which is at the end of September, and they're all looking forward to that. And when I told my brownies that Blacklands were closing, the, uh, the amazed looks on their faces, and one little girl said, 
but I'm having a birthday party up at Blacklands. And will that still go ahead? So I had to say, yes, it will. It sounds as though there'll be a big impact if the site was to close. Are there any other similar centres locally that you can use? Um, well, as I said, the other ones that are closing, there's those centres that could offer the facilities, but they're obviously further away. But we haven't really got anything like Blacklands around here that offer all the choice of activities that they do. So are you planning to fight the closure or is it too late for that? Well, nothing's been planned as yet because it's early days, but there are petitions on Facebook which people can sign and Blacklands being one of them. So if anybody wants to go onto Facebook and put their name on the petition for Blacklands, then they're quite welcome to. And why would you say it's important for the local community to get behind you on this and try and prevent the site from closing? Well, I think it's a lot of, with the facilities up at Blacklands, there's a lot of fun and enjoyment and learning new skills, as I mentioned, that the girls are just going to lose out on. There are some children that go to Blacklands who've never been involved in like the canoeing that they do on Weir Wood. They do lots of um, boating activities on Weir Wood and lots of schools come down from London, for example. And those children are having a wonderful time, which they wouldn't get out in the open countryside. And the, the freedom of Blacklands where they can just run around through the woods and go wild in the woods and which they might not ever have the opportunity to do that. So that will be a great loss to a lot of children and adults because the adults use the site as well. Clearly the closure of the site would be a huge loss. How would you feel if it was to remain but perhaps under different ownership? If there are these firms that do activity centres who perhaps would take it over, whether that would make it more expensive, I don't know. But um, it would be nice to see somebody take it over to keep the activities going for the enjoyment of the girls. Fantastic. Jill, thanks so much for joining us today and telling us a little bit more about the threat that Blacklands Farm is under. It would be sad to see it go. We asked Girl Guiding UK to comment on news of the closure. They provided us with the following statement. For over 100 years, Girl Guiding has changed as the lives of girls change. Girl Guiding's Board of Trustees regularly review strategy, risk and resources in order to focus on the organisation's core mission for all girls and to ensure it's financially sustainable for the future. Following a comprehensive review, the Board of Trustees have made the recommendation to sell the five activity centres Girl Guiding owns, including Blackland Farm. Under the proposal, the five centres will keep operating until the 31st of December 2023. We're planning for all 2023 events and bookings to go ahead. Girl Guiding is now beginning a period of consultation with staff who may be affected by any implementation of this recommendation. We remain committed to giving all girls opportunities to experience adventure within their units, near their home and in other locations and facilities. The consultation period has now started and concludes in early July. Girl Guiding is unable to comment further during this time. Affected staff will find out the outcome of the consultation in August. If you'd like to sign the petition to save Blackland Farm, we'll post a link to this on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. Children could be at greater risk of serious childhood diseases. That's according to recent figures from the UK Health Security Agency, which shows a national rise in the case of illnesses such as measles. The West Sussex Public Health team have now launched a campaign to encourage parents and carers to get their children vaccinated before they return to school in September. Matt Ollie from the team is here to tell us more. Matt, thanks for joining me. What are you hoping to achieve with the new campaign that you've launched? 
Yeah, hi, good morning, and um, thanks, Tim. Um, so as you said, we, uh, the public health team in West Sussex are launching a new campaign focused on uh, children's immunisations. What we're wanting to uh, articulate within this campaign is is the, the real importance of those vaccines with, in protecting children uh, against a variety of um, childhood diseases, which can be uh, which, which can be uh, quite serious. Um, so the the main aim of this campaign is is really twofold. It's really to, to say to parents and guardians that it's not too late uh, to have your uh, child vaccinated. So if your child has, has missed some of those vaccinations, it's never too late and you can uh, get your child vaccinated. But also it, we feel it's a good time to launch the campaign because obviously we're conscious that some of those children will be going to school for the first time in September or returning to school. So again, it's just that opportunity to ensure parents um, uh, are kind of aware of the need for these important vaccines uh, and to check their uh, ch children's vaccination history. And why is it important to get children immunised? Um, it's really important because there's a variety of uh, uh, diseases that children can pick up during the, the early years of their life. Uh, and so the UK uh, routine immunisation schedule looks to um, protect those children from a, from those variety of diseases. And some of those diseases can be measles, mumps and rubella, but also more serious diseases such as uh, meningococcal disease and, and, and meningitis. So one of the key aspects of the programme is to, is to really ensure that we're reducing that risk and protect in these children from you know uh, quite serious diseases so um, one of the uh, vaccines for, uh, from our perspective are the most effective way of uh, ensuring protection for for those children um, they are cost effective but clinically effective uh, and so this is as, as we've said you know this is a, a real call just just to those uh, parents or guardians just to take this time Prior to prior to uh, children going to school, um, to ensure that they, uh, you know, to check their vaccination history and um, and make sure that those those vaccines are up to date. So, what are some of the recommended vaccinations that children should be having? As we say, there's a variety of um, diseases that we're looking to protect against. And from our perspective, you know, the vaccines delivered in the routine immunisation schedule uh, are kind of given at certain ages to prevent that infection and to ensure that those children from the greatest level of risk uh, uh, are kind of protected. Um, there's a variety of programmes, but just to kind of pull out one or two of those, uh, we've seen a national increase uh, within the UK around measles. So one of the vaccination programmes that we want to ensure that children are up to date with is measles, mumps and rubella. So that's a course of two vaccines which are given on two separate occasions, uh, but which offers protection against those, uh, th those diseases. Other diseases that's within the routine schedule include meningitis, so we are we protect against meningitis, for example, uh, but also other diseases such as hepatitis B, diphtheria, polio, and and, and tetanus. Um, but I think from our perspective, whilst we vaccinate against all these diseases, all, all of them are equally important. So this is really a call that whilst we are looking at MMR and we're maybe picking out one or two examples of, of programmes, all these programmes are equally important. So we, it's just that main message again to those parents or guardians to ensure that um, their children are up to date. And one of the, the best things to do really for parents or guardians is either to check their red books if they have it, um, if they don't have it they can just contact their GP surgery either speak to the uh, general practitioner or practice nurse they'll be able to go through the vaccination history and check which which vaccines are missing if there if there is any missing now as you've mentioned one of your key messages is that it's not too late to do anything if your child's missed one of these vaccinations how do you go about booking in a missed vaccination if you are missing programmes, the best way uh, to, to get your child vaccinated and to be up to date is to contact your uh, general practitioner. And if there are any missing, they'll be able to uh, schedule that appointment accordingly for you. If anyone's got any questions about a specific vaccination or just wants to know more about the programmes in general, where can they go to get further information? Uh, the best source of advice we would say to parents or guardians is to make contact with your GP. So either speak to the general practitioner or speak to the practice nurse and they'll be able to go through some of those questions, for, uh, some of those queries and questions and, and 
you know, um, talk about the immunization schedule uh, in, in greater detail with you. Alternatively, uh, you can go onto the NHS website, um, which has a, an immunization page. And again, up, up to date, uh, comprehensive information is available on that NHS website. That's great. Matt, thanks so much for your time today and for explaining a bit more about the vaccination campaign. Thank you. As a reminder, if you'd like to know more about the vaccination programme, visit nhs.uk forward slash conditions forward slash vaccinations. That's nhs.uk forward slash conditions forward slash vaccinations. Alternatively, you can talk to your registered GP practice. We'll post the link to the NHS website on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. On his mid-morning show on Tuesday, Paul Tolmy spoke to Steve Odie about a regular global cycling event called Kiddical Mass. They're having their inaugural community ride here in East Grinstead a week today. It started off in Europe, actually, um, and the events have grown um, throughout the world, actually. So uh, I think there's over about 40 events in the UK at the moment. Um, East Grinstead, uh, this will be our first one on the 11th of June and uh, it's going to be amazing it's going to be fantastically uh, well supported i hope and um it's basically to encourage people to get out on their bikes and also to raise sort of uh, awareness for public streets to be made safe uh, and accessible to cyclists and wheelers of all types and ages and physical abilities um it's a great thing it's uh, I'm, I'm really excited about it actually it's going to become a regular event as well so is this going to be a weekly or monthly? Or? Uh, no, at the moment um, it's at the moment it wouldn't be a weekly thing, but it it, uh, it takes a little bit um, of time yeah, to organise. But we're talking, you know, every, eventually every every month, every couple of months potentially. Um, as you probably are aware, with these sorts of things, uh, it's very volunteer led, yeah. and so therefore uh, I've been really really lucky um, in uh, in uh, knowing a few people that have volunteered to help mm. um uh, a, a, a good friend of mine uh, marek Suwiki, who's a uh, who's organized british cycling events as well is 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 on the team and he's been uh, instrumental in putting together a team of marshals as well from the east grinstead cycling club big shout out to them yeah. uh, and also um we've had some great help from michelle and robert on your bike as well so that's been brilliant um so yeah it's a it's a it takes a little bit longer to to put together than we than I yeah. first thought, but it, once we get the ball rolling, it'll be brilliant. And actually, um, uh, the people that are, will, ben, will benefit from this event um, are, are, are just going to have a great time. Mm, I'm sure they will. It's, it sounds it sounds like a great um, a community initiative, and also you know this is one for all the family. It is very much so. Yeah. So on the uh, on the advert that I put together, that's uh, on the on the Facebook group. Um, and if people would like to, uh, if, if people are on Facebook, join the group East Grinstead Kiddical Mass or Kiddical Mass East Grinstead, I think it's called. Um, and um, the, it says ages from zero to 99, um, you know, and, and any physical, anybody with physical abilities that has got wheels can come along too. Um, you know, so it's, it's a very inclusive event. Mm. I mean, it's not just East Grinstead. I mean, anyone can get on their bike and come over and be a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've had um, some uh, interest and some messages uh, from people from all over the surrounding areas of East Grinstead as well. So um, uh, one uh, one mum messaged me and said that she was going to go to the Red Hill one, but she's going to go to the East Grinstead one on the 11th of June because it's closer to her um, and for her, her children, uh, which is great. Um, yeah, so I think we'll see, you know, hopefully people from all over, Dormazan, Lingfield, you know, in those areas. But we are the first one in Mid-Sussex, which we're really proud of. So uh, uh, we're looking forward to it. It can only grow from there then. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the idea really is it for it to, to grow. And um, it's basically to sort of celebrate, you know, the freedom that you get from uh, independent and um, affordable and sustainable travel modes like cycling. Mm. Um, you know, and the idea really is to enable uh, children particularly uh, and uh, uh, those um, with young people and our children to be able to safely travel by bike or wheels wherever they live. That's the kind of motto for Kiddical Mass. Um, and it will be great from a, you know East Grinstead perspective to be able to provide that um, amenity for people. Um, you know, because one of the things that um, I regularly get told about really is that, yeah, we'd love our kids to cycle more, but they just don't feel safe on the road. So 
you know, we need to address that. Yeah, of course. How important is it to, for this uh, events like this to get people out and active and not sort of, you know, obviously we're all kind of, we were all, I don't like keep bringing up lockdown and everything, but we were all kind of, you know, stuck indoors and we were all allowed out for a one hour cycle. So now that we can get back to events like this mm. and, and, and get out and get active again, these events are so important. And yeah. also for people who just, uh, you know, we were saying just, just before we came on air, people who, who want to be a part of it but can't commit to, a, you know, being part of a cycling club. Yeah, it's, it's critical um, from that perspective. And one of the things that um, I'm very keen on is that, you know, uh, children's, particularly children's mental well-being is really important. And cycling is a really is a critical element of of uh, of helping with that. Mm. Um, and uh, so that's that's one of the key things for us is to get as many kids out as we can um, out in the fresh air, you know, being active. And like you said, it's a it's a we're three years down the line now, aren't we, from yeah. uh, when we initially locked down and uh, which was horrendous. And, um, you know. The, the repercussions of that are being felt now. So hopefully this is what Kidical Mass can help with a little bit and um, get kids out there being active, jump on their bikes and feel safe. And if you've got weather like we had over the weekend, then you're laughing. <laughs> well, I'm touching wood. I've yeah. got every fingers and all my toes crossed. Uh, yeah, for the 11th is going to be uh, going to be nice for everybody. But even if it rains, you know what? It's going to be fine yeah. because you know put on a raincoat and yeah. uh it, it's going to be fun whatever and um the route's going to be fully marshaled so it's fairly safe um and uh we'll have rolling experienced cyclists as marshals mm. so that the the road is is we can't have closed roads um no. unfortunately but with the marshals it, it keeps everybody safe and the kids will have fun and the feedback that I've seen from other events from other uh, towns and cities across the country is that it's been really well received. People love seeing the kids out on their bikes and uh, having fun and, and there'll be music playing along the line as in, in, the, in the group as well. And, and, and really, that's just the best thing. Have you been to any of the other ones? Uh, no, I haven't been to anyone, uh, any others yet. Um, I was uh, planning to go to the one in Reading a couple of weeks ago, but I couldn't go in the end for a family commitment. But um, we'll be taking videos as well so we can, um, you know, promote it and then build on, on this first one and, 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 and really grow it. Brilliant. All right. Well, uh, map out the uh, so just map out the route for us because you're starting at Sainsbury's Car Park. Yeah. So we'll, we'll start at the back of the Sainsbury's Car Park. It's a, a reasonably uh, large yeah. space. And mm. then we'll, we'll go uh, past the station. And then um, one of the uh, town's attractions if you like for active travel is uh, is what we call our station to statue route mm. which is basically connecting Worthway and Forest Way so we go up past the station up railway approach uh, onto London Road and then we go up to the top to the high street turning left at Lloyd's Bank and then down the high street and then down um, Church Lane uh, past the church to Checkermead and we do a little loop down Dillawall Road back round to the the traffic lights on the high street and then back up London Road and High Street again. And then we would loop back into East Court past Checkermead uh, from there where we'll have little green coffee trucks agreed to uh, come back in the afternoon to provide drinks for everybody. And then, and then and it's a perfect location if you've got lots, you know, young children as well, because there's a per playground for them to have a play around after the bike ride as well. And uh, we'll all congregate for a big photograph and, uh, and a cheer and uh, and look forward to the next one. You're exhausted just explaining that, aren't you? <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's going to be great, but we'll go it at is. the same speed as the youngest children, which yeah. is, you know, part of the thing is, is making them feel safe. And, and um, you know, if those younger kids can uh, feel safe on their bike rides and have an experience that they probably wouldn't normally have, uh, it is is all part of the, the great thing about it. And it's not a mass. race. It's just, a, just no. enjoying the, you know. It's a celebration of people yeah. being on their bikes, really, and mm. or on their wheels, Um and yeah, it's it's a it's a going to be phenomenal. This is so much more than just a cycling event because there's there's so many different dimensions. And you said some that you had probably hadn't even anticipated. Well, the, yes, basically because there's a lot of people uh, of of all ages that are, are taking part. That um, uh, I think that you know just by getting out on the bike and providing a safe environment for people, it, it would hopefully um, uh, encourage people uh, and, and build up their confidence to, uh, to cycle more potentially. And um, it gives particularly younger children an opportunity to cycle on the roads when they wouldn't normally be able to do it. Yeah, and it's definitely going to be, I think it's going to be a brilliant day. So um, people can just turn up on... 
Yeah, they can turn up. I mean, um, it would be great. It, uh, we've set up a, an event. I'm not very tech-minded, Paul, but I've set up an event on the Facebook group page, uh, and people can uh, go onto that and uh, and sign up to the event, which would be great just to get some numbers. Yeah. But it's it's not the end of the world. And I, uh, you know, obviously not everybody's on Facebook, and so that's why I, I jumped at the chance to come on your show. So thanks for that. Pleasure. Um, and yeah, so sign up to the event, join the group. Um, there's lots of information available to people on there um, and um, lots of uh, encouraging comments and um, uh, ideas of, of uh, you know, and thoughts about how it all went with previous uh, towns and cities. So we're building on their experience too. And then you'll tape away from this event and see how you can plan for the for subsequent ones. Yes, yeah, so we'll, we'll, um, we'll finish the event uh, we'll get back together. There's a, a, a sort of a core team, a committee, if you like, uh, of, of people. And so thank you guys for, for being in the team on that one. Um, and uh, th- we'll review it, see what went right, what went wrong. And then we'll also like to incorporate maybe some different routes as well and um, incorporate some other things um, in terms of stopping at uh, you know places where we can all have a drink and things like that. So there's lots of things that we've got thinking about in the pipeline you know further down the line steve odie talking there to paul tolmy kidical mass takes place on sunday the 11th of june from 2 p.m until 4 p.m they'll be meeting at the back of the sainsbury's car park in east grinstead from 1:30 onwards for more details search for kidical mass east grinstead on facebook we'll post a link on twitter at sunday review 107 and on facebook.com forward slash sunday review 107 this week saw the start of a new environment show on Meridian FM. For the next month, Jago Bailey will be sharing local, national and international environmental news, insightful interviews with guests on topics that affect the environment and spreading the message that what we do locally affects global planetary health. His first guest was Janice Fern, chair of the East Grinstead Beekeepers Association. The East Grinstead Beekeepers' role in the community is to educate and inform people about beekeeping and beekeepers. Why do you think that people in the community need to know more about bees and also maybe learn the practice of beekeeping? So people are more aware, for example, you know, don't mow your lawns at the beginning of the season, especially don't mow up the dandelions because that's the first form of food that the bees go out to forage for. We are now in swarm season. Swarm season's May to July, um, and a lot of people panic when they see a swarm. Swarms will not harm you at all. Um, They are at their most docile. It might sound phenomenal, the, the noise they make, but I was always told that a swarm, you could actually put your hand in it and not get stung. I wouldn't recommend it myself. I don't know though. how much I fancy that. <laughs> <laughs> could, you, could you tell us a bit more about swarms? Like, uh, what is a swarm? A swarm basically is a way bees to reproduce. Um, they split to make more colonies to ensure that there are more bees going forward. Uh, it's basically there's too many in the colonies, so the, uh, the queen and half the colony will move on to somewhere else and they will stop off en route so you may see them swarming up your trees if you see a swarm then report it to the association you know don't start throwing sticks and stones into them bees will only sting if they feel threatened because a bee if it does sting and it stings badly enough it will die unlike wasps uh, I've been called out to the East Greenstead Old Convent uh, twice this season so far in the past three weeks, and I've taken three colon- three swarms from there. And and how is that process of sort of taking those swarms? Is it is it quite a complicated process? <laughs> Put it this way: they don't read the same manuals as us beekeepers. It can be it can be as easy as anything. Last week I went along, they was on a low hanging branch and I literally cut the branch and put the bees into a, what we call a nucleus box, covered them up and brought them home and homed them in one of my hives. But other ones they could be very high up in a tree. We've been called out to a grade one listed building down by Weirwood where it was literally actually in the uh, foundations of the building and I had to call out a different member who's insured to go into a building to he's a builder so he's got all the relevant insurances and he made three colonies out of that uh, one lot that he collected so it's, it's quite a varied 
It, it is very varied. The nice easy ones are the ones where you can just get the nuke box and sort of whack it underneath the branch they're hanging on and they all fall in. But it's not that often not that always happens. Like that. No. Oh, okay. I saw that you're affiliated with the British Beekeepers Association. Um, could you talk a bit more about the benefits of that partnership? Uh, the benefits of that is we, everyone has to have a membership through the BBKA. We get our BDI insurance through them, which means if we have to destroy one of our colonies through a notifiable disease, then we will get the insurance back. And beekeeping, as lovely as it is, isn't a cheap hobby. No, as I'm sure that's that's true. And are there any sort of training opportunities that you get through that partnership? Uh, yes, there are. Uh, I took the basic assessment several years ago, and that's basically an inspector will come down and what, ask you various questions about bees and beekeeping. You then show him that you can inspect a colony, you can find a queen. And, and then they've got ongoing studies uh, work, working on various different things like bee management, um, colony management, bee health, the anatomy of a bee, which I'm not quite ready for yet. How did you actually come across the association? I mean, I was sitting in my garden several years ago and I said, I want to, be, I want to keep bees. Never kept bees before, didn't know whether I'd get stung or whether I'd react to them. And the first thing I did was actually join the association long before getting my bees and actually going on a course to learn about it. What sort of threats are there to honeybees in the UK? In the UK, you've got the usual threats, the varroa mite. Um, there is also, you've got the, we don't have as many sightings, but there are, has been a few of the Asian hornet was one of the major threats. It will wipe out a bee colony. Um, but as soon as... Um, we see an Asian hornet, then basically they go in and exterminate the nest when they find it. I've read that certain factors such as maybe climate change or habitat loss are habitat contributing loss, factors. Yes, I would think that is a contributing factor to um, the honeybee. As long as we've, I would suggest that everyone plants pollinators, bee friendly plants throughout the whole of the season, not just for the summer. You know, that they come out, they come out in and forage earlier in the season they don't want to fly too far so having bee friendly plants or pollinators in the garden is is a good idea i've read that a lot of uh honey well most of the honeybees in the uk they live in hives is that correct that's correct yes do you find honeybees in the wild or are most of the honeybees now honeybees managed? managed as such yes i mean we beekeepers you know you can actually purchase honeybees from um, sources, I get mine when I need a new nuke box. I get mine from Payne's down in Hassocks. Okay, so it's, can anyone become a beekeeper, basically? Yes, anyone yeah. can become a beekeeper. But okay. I would recommend that they don't just go out and go and get a hive and get their bees. I, I recommend they be join an association for the support and also learn about it as well. I mean, I've done a two-day course years ago about it. There's three types of honeybee. What, what are those three types? You've got the queen... The, the workers, which again are females, and the drones, which are the male bees. Uh, we tend, the male bees, the drones don't have a sting, so we tend to use them as practice for uh, marking, because we have to mark the queen, so we know how old she is. And why do you need to know how old the queen is? Uh, the queen can last up to five years, and if you pick up a, a swarm, you need to know, and you find the queen, you know by whatever colour it is as to how old she is. And, of course, towards the end of the five years, she's not going to be laying as many eggs as she was in the first few years. And the, the eggs that are laid by the queen, that obviously produces more bees. Yeah. Um, what happens once that queen passes away what what happens to that cycle and all the bees that are living in that hive basically the queen the queen lays eggs the workers will turn the eggs into they will pick which ones they want as prospective queens and treat them differently um and basically they will kill off the queen once the um new, the virgin queen has emerged virgin queens then go and fly to a drone mating area where they mate with several drones over a period of time and then come back and then they're in the colony for the rest of their life literally laying eggs and with honeybees does that mating process always happen within a, a man-made hive 
Yes. Yeah. Well, they, they fly out of it, obviously. They but fly yes, out of it. But yeah. And they'll go to another one. And uh, then no, they, it's a drone mating area. It's, it's so sort what, what is a drone mating area? I've yet to find one myself, but it's just somewhere outside in the trees or wherever. Okay, so outside uh, of the hive. Outside of the hive, yeah, if they don't mate in the hive. Okay, brilliant. Yeah. So as a, as a beekeeper, does that mean that you've sort of got an expanding population of bees or does it stay quite stable? My hives will have will be at their biggest sort of this month, next month, about seventy, eighty thousand bees in a colony. That's um, a lot of bees. That's a lot of bees. But then they start dwindling off towards the end of the season and in September time, because the drones are a all they do is mate with the queen and eat the food. So basically the uh, worker bees pull their wings off and kick them out the hive towards the end of the season because they don't want the drones in there right okay to <laughs> so drain on their resources and, and with that many bees up to up to eighty thousand, mm-hmm. is there quite a big safety risk or is, is the equipment that you and the and the clothes you wear are you fully protected from i'm fully protected uh we have bee suit i wear quite i wear marigold gloves okay. some beekeepers wear the thinner latex ones you can still get stung through them you only get stung through your own carelessness I haven't been stung that much. I think we've been stung once this season so far. Okay, that's not too much. No. And if you do get stung by a bee, is that always quite a minor concern? For me, for me it is. There are people, there are beekeepers out there that um, carry an EpiPen with them. Um, but for me, I'm fine. And the thing is, once you get stung, the knack is to not panic, not scream or go running off. <laughs> um, but basically pull the sting out. And we carry a smoker with us. Uh, to smoke the hive, smoke the colonnades, just to, it kills off any pheromones in the hive. So mm-hmm. if a bee stings you, it lets off a pheromone that says we're under attack. And that's why you probably would get more than one sting. So as, as soon as you smoke the area, you've killed off that pheromone so they won't attack you anymore. Me personally, I also talk to my bees, which keeps them calm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um could you maybe talk a little bit about the role of, of honeybees and, and pollinating insects in general um, in terms of pollinating uh, crops in the UK? Um, basically, a lot of beekeepers will move their hives to farmland. Farmers ask for um, us to put our hives there. They, they produce probably triple the amount of crops if there's honeybees, if there's hives on their land. There's sometimes a bit of a debate about whether beekeeping is, is more of a farming practice or a conservation practice. Some research has sort of shown that bees may sort of compete with wild pollinators, um, whereas others maybe will talk more about um, the pollinating strength of honeybees and how they may be sort of a, a canary in the coal mine to sort of recognise um, broader threats to, to wild pollinators as well. Um, firstly, sort of how do you feel about where you sit with that debate? Do you think that that distinction is an important one to make? Now, I think we need pollinators, all sorts of pollinators, whether it's bees, butterflies or whatever, because without them, we won't get the crops, will we? In terms of how you run the apiary, are there, are there any measures you take, you take to sort of try and be more sustainable? Um, obviously, you sell, is it local honey that you sell? We sell our honey that, we, that our bees produce, yes. Bees don't only produce honey, there's wax from them as well. So we, when we're uncapping the honey for extraction, we put all the wax separately and we, we give the wax back to Paynes, who then clean it up for us and make it into the foundations that we need to put back into our uh, hives for the bees to start building their comb and honey again. So, I mean, there's lots of products you can get from the hive. You know, there's Propolis, which has got an antiseptic um, use, I mean, I was told once that if you've got sore throat, chew a bit of propolis and it kills off the sore throat. Uh, and, and did it work? I haven't tried it. You haven't tried that's, it yet. That's the person who was telling me. Oh, okay. <laughs> maybe maybe worth we'll try sometime. Yeah. Besides sort of, you know, keeping the bees, uh, do you have sort of a role in the community in terms of um, doing talks and teaching about beekeeping? As part of the association, we give talks to schools and children and women's institutes and old people's homes. Um, I, I gave about seven or eight talks last year to various people. And, and what are the main themes of those talks? Uh, 
basically about bees, what, what the equipment is to be a beekeeper. Most people was more interested in buying the honey, which is good. <laughs> from the honey that I sell from the, to the association, it all goes back into the association, which then helps us to then improve our apiary. Janice Fern talking there to Jago Bailey. You can hear the full interview on our Listen Again service on our website at meridianfm.com. We'll post the link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. Jago will be back with his next environment show this Wednesday at 2pm. Paul Tolmy also spoke to Dawn Reed from Five Rivers Fostering on his show this week. Following on from their last chat in March, the organisation are still in need of over 9,000 foster families across the UK. So Five Rivers is a social enterprise that was set up 33 years ago by a social worker called Pam McConnell, who's still the CEO of Five Rivers today, an independent fostering agency that's committed to social good and to turning children's lives around. And I'm here today, Paul, to hopefully reach out to your audience if they might want to help with turning children's lives around. So you were back on the show um, in March, uh, Dawn. Uh, how's things been since since then? Things have been really good. We've had some good inquiries, but we're still really short of foster carers, not just in the uh, Mid-Sussex, Wealdon area, across the whole of the country in England. We're 9,300 foster families short of what we need for children in care. So that's why I want to come back on today mm. as well, that coincides. We've just finished Foster Care Fortnight, which raises awareness about foster care and the great job that foster carers do. Um, and I wanted to come back today to just, you know, gentle reminders of people about fostering. If it's something you've thought about, you know, if you want to have a further chat, if you want to know a bit more, got any questions, hopefully I can answer some of those questions mm. today and some of the myths around fostering. Yeah, because we were saying that before we came on, because we, when you first came on, you said you wanted to bust some myths. Do you feel that foster, has, has foster care fortnight gone some way to dispelling that? Well, I hope so. <laughs> but these myths, they still prevail, unfortunately. And mm. there is lots of myths around fostering. Like, for example, people think that you have to be married. You don't. You can be single. You can be in a same-sex relationship. You don't have to be married. You don't have to own your own home. You can be renting. You don't have to have had your own children. You don't have to be young. We have lots of foster carers who are 60 plus. And it's at, when you get older that you actually have this physical space in your home and the time and the experience to offer that care and love to a child. We also don't want people who have got, um, you know, perfect people. We're looking for... Mm qualities not qualifications you don't, you don't want people to put themselves down no and feel like they can't yeah, yeah exactly everyone has got their own lived experience and lots of strengths that they can bring towards fostering and um, you don't have to have lots of experience working for children obviously if you have that's really great and will you know set you in good stead um, but you don't have to have those qualifications with children. We do have um, foster carers who, you know, are teachers and former nurses, and that's great. But equally, we don't have um, people who've recently retired that have become foster carers. It's more about the qualities that's important in fostering and the love and care for children. Mm. And obviously the safeguarding element of it as well. Yes, that's yeah. right. But that's part of the process when you become a foster carer, where you get trained, yeah. you have lots of training, um, in about safeguarding and what you would do but it's more about the qualities so we want someone if you're kind empathetic nurturing reliable organized good sense of humor good role model life experience and open to further training in areas you might need to develop such as safeguarding that you mm. mentioned that's what the process of going through to become approved helps you with fill any gaps and then you have ongoing training when you become approved we're not looking for perfect people. Yeah. We're looking for kind and caring people and with those qualities. Can can Five Rivers work with people who, who are interested but might feel that the commitment is just at the moment too large, but then they can work around, find a way around it? Well, we can in the sense that we have lots of opportunities in fostering. It's not always you have a child, you know, from a young child and you foster them all the way to 18. We have um, things like respite foster carers. We have some foster carers that might just foster a couple of, you know, weekends um, a month or, you know, a couple of weeks a year. They may be other teachers or that's just what they want to do. It's their way to give back to society. You don't have to foster full time, although they are mm. needed as well. We really do need full time foster carers. But we also need foster carers that can offer respite or short 
you know, term fostering, such as a weekend every month. So, so it's not just a, it's not a permanent fixture then. It's, it can just be, you know, the odd weekend or yep. a couple of days. Yep, someone could just do the odd weekend or a couple of days, as well as somebody could foster all the way through a child 18 into adulthood. So there's lots of opportunities that can work around what your lifestyle is, um, and you know, have a chat with us about your individual circumstances because um, each case is unique. Yeah. And you know, give me a call. I'll share my details at the end of um, our chat today, Paul. And we, I can have a chat with anyone who's interested about their specific circumstances and whether fostering can work for them. Mm. And you're across East and West Sussex. That's right. I cover the whole of East and West Sussex. Um, and I'm the social worker for the for the local area, and I'd love to have a chat with anyone that was interested in fostering or just wanted to know more about mm. fostering. And and the chat's just no obligation. There's just a there's no just obligation. No. Have yeah. an informal chat with me about your specific circumstances, any questions that you may have. Um, there is some essential criteria, and that is that you have to be aged 21 years and over. You have to be a British citizen or have right to remain in the UK and you must have that spare bedroom. Mm. That is the, the basic requirements that we need as well as those qualities that's the most important of being kind, empathetic, nurturing, reliable and a sense of humour and just love and care for children. Mm. Does somebody assess the, uh, the, the, the potential home beforehand? That's right. Well, so what would happen okay. if someone was interested in fostering, they could have a chat with me and I'd arrange to come out and have another chat in their home yeah. called initial home visit. I'd have a look around the home and answer any questions, explain in detail more about the process because um, it takes four to six months to get approved as a foster carer. And then if I thought that you were you know, suitable to foster and you wanted to foster, then we could start the process. And then the four to six months timeline um, starts and during that time you have lots of visits with a social worker exploring you know what what type of um, situation that you can have to offer what um, age children might be suitable for you you complete the skills to foster training which is about safeguarding mm. and talks about why children might be in care um, talks about um, keeping records when children's in care so with that initial home visit I'll answer any questions that you have. And again, there's no obligation, um, again, even at that point. But we would hope that people would want to proceed because I know that the people in East Grinstead and surrounding areas, they're kind, caring people. Um, they want to help others. And mm. I know that some of your listeners today, you know, might have those qualities that we're looking for. So if you do have those qualities, please get in touch. Give me a call mm -hmm. and we can have a chat. Is there like a waiting list at the moment then for... There's not a waiting list at the moment okay. per se, um, but we, we'd range initial home visit around yeah. a time that suited you. It could be the evening or the weekend. If you are a couple, we would need um, both you know, applicants to be at home. If you're a single person, just use your home with that initial home visit. Um, at four, during the four to six months, what happens is we have background checks going on. Your DBS yeah. happens. Yeah. We, you attend your compulsory training. Um, we have lots of conversations about what it means to be a foster carer. You um, get to meet other foster carers as well on your um, training that you go on. Mm. Yeah. So the so the compulsory training is 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 what just. So it's um, at the moment it's five days and it rotates each month the days and week that they're on and it's ten till two it's online. Okay. And you come together the foster carers and you talk about what it means to be a foster carer and the skills required to be a foster carer during that training that will help you you know with the basic knowledge to go forward in your fostering career. And then they can bounce off other potential... Yeah, okay. definitely. And they talk about safeguarding and yeah. reasons why children might be in care and, and contact with birth families. But we also um, have foster carers, not always where children have been removed from um, their families. We have it you know, because the family situation, maybe it's a disabled child... And um, to give the family a break or the other children the household a break, mm. they might be fostered, you know, one weekend a month. Um, so it's not always or someone's not got a large support network. So they so a foster care might be needed for a week to look after some children while mum might be having an operation um, and there's no one to look after the children. So it's not always children that have been removed. And other, re and other respite options are yeah. pretty extortionate. Yeah, definitely. And for other 
other foster carers maybe they've got an event to go to that child can't attend such as a funeral and we need someone to look after those mm. children who are already with long-term foster homes locally um their foster carer maybe to attend an event that that child couldn't go to so there's lots of opportunities with fostering as well as parent and child fostering that's um, for 12 weeks around 12 weeks at a time where a parent and child comes to stay with you to respite to long term for all ages from zero through to 18 and we hope that um foster carers you know will who have had long-term children that child will become part of their lives and be part of their support network from 18 and beyond because we are committed to turning children's lives around. Tell us if people have listened this morning and they want to get involved, what can they do? Yes, if you want to give me a call, you can call me directly on my mobile 07518 and have an informal chat. You can also call our care inquiry team on 0330-818-5464 or visit our website, which is 5FIVE rivers r-i-v-e-r-s dot org i'd love to hear from anybody there's no silly question please give us a call we really need foster carers and if you have those qualities that i spoke about earlier i would love to hear from you dawn reed from five rivers fostering talking there to paul Tolmy. if you're interested in finding out more about fostering then here's a reminder of those contact details you can give Dawn a call directly on 07518 913 788. That's 07518 913 788. Or you can speak to the Five Rivers support team on 0330 818 5464. That's 0330 818 5464. Or visit them online at 5-rivers.org. That's 5-rivers.org. And that's it for the latest edition. We've got all the information on the features you've heard today on Twitter at SundayReview107 or on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. I'll be back on air next Sunday morning from 10am on 107 Meridian FM or on meridianfm.com or you can download the latest podcast. Until then, take care and have a great week ahead.